Good morning. It is good to be with all of you here in this place this morning. Now, uh, you may have noticed some changes here, and uh, it took a lot of work to pull this off. And there are many people who deserve our recognition and gratitude. Uh, and I believe we'll be mentioning them later. And if you're unhappy with something, there are many contractors to blame. Um, so we'll, uh, we may also list those. I don't know. Um, but it is good to be worshiping together back in the sanctuary after a great time at Alpha. And those of you who thought you were done seeing the Alpha logo may notice on the back of your bulletin is a big red question mark telling us the next time. So we want to keep it fresh since we all remember it. And the feedback we got was um, largely pleasantly surprised by Alpha. People went in with low expectations. Unfortunately, that was a one-time gift. Now we all know it's good, and uh, we have appropriate expectations. So we just have to do better uh, to exceed them again. And as you may have picked up from our front sign, from our screens, from your bulletin, uh, the sermon series that we're going to be entering is on minimalism. And um, now we almost were able to tie this in cleverly because I was here Wednesday and there was still a lot of work being done in Sanctuary. And I thought, you know, if it's not done, we'll just tell them it's part of the sermon series. Uh, it's <laughs> scaled back. Carpet is too lofty for us. Uh, but thankfully, uh, it's just the sermon series theme. Now, the the thing I want to do, I need to do, is I need to introduce three things here because we're starting a new series, we're starting in a new book of the Bible, but I don't want to just talk about the series, I want to actually preach today's sermon. And so there are three things to talk about. The season, the series, and the scripture. The season that we have entered as of this past Wednesday, which was Ash Wednesday, is a, is a series, a season called Lent. Now, even people who have grown up in the church may not be familiar with that depending on where you grew up. Uh, and if you've been outside the church, you may have heard that word or may think that there's a different vowel in there and don't know why I'm talking about it. But it's L-E-N-T, Lent. And it's a term that describes the 40 days leading up to Easter. And we remember the 40 days that Jesus spent in the wilderness. And in recognition of that scarcity, many ch- Christians choose to give up something for Lent. And the question is, you know, uh, now many of us have picked up that practice from family or uh, circumstance where we give up something for Lent. Uh, I, I try to give up something that I wasn't really doing anyway. Uh, I find that makes it much more achievable. But the hope is that in decluttering our lives, just as Jesus in the wilderness was free of uh, distraction and free of uh, even contact with others for the most part, the hope is that by decluttering, we'll find a greater connection with God and with ourselves and with those in our lives. That's the goal of this time in Lent. Now, so that's the season we're in. The series that we're entering is called Minimalism. Now, how many of you are familiar with the term minimalism from pop culture? Great. So half of you know and half of you are about to find out. But it's a term that's been used in American culture, especially lately, to describe a lifestyle that seeks to minimize commitments and clutter. There's a group called The Minimalists. They have a website called minimalism.com or The Minimalists. And they define it as a tool to rid yourself of life's excess by focusing on what's important. So it's a tool 
Minimalism is not an end in itself. It's a tool to achieve an end, and the goal is to focus on what is important. Now, it seems like maybe a massive oversight. They help you find all kinds of excess that you can cut from your life, but they don't tell you what is actually important. That's kind of a huge blank to leave unfilled. Uh, and so we're going to try to fill that in. But the trend has caught on in such huge ways. Uh, some of you may have heard of Marie Kondo, who had a show on Netflix, where she encourages people to purge their excess possessions. And she'll say, you know, pull all your clothes out of your wardrobe and lay them on your bed and pick up each one and say, does this spark joy? And if it doesn't, it goes. Um, Someone recommended I do that with my book collection, and uh, I said no. Um, but the trend caused, at least in several states, but wider across the nation, this was true, but in, in the highest state, a 42% increase of donations to Goodwill within three months of that show releasing on Netflix. 42% of people found that they owned a bunch of stuff that was taking up space in their house and in their lives. And every time you flip through your closet, you kind of process, do I want to wear that today? And if you say no for three years in a row, it might be time for it to go. And uh, so she helped guide them. And so one question that we're going to look at in this series is how, how can the minimalist approach serve the Christian life? What is it when we look at our lives, not just with physical stuff, but with spiritual stuff, with uh, our uh, psychological approach to life? What is it? How can we clear out the clutter and focus our lives on what really matters? And as Christians, we have uh, at least our proposed answer for what matters most in life. Now, we're going to do this by looking at the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, Ecclesiastes is not the most popular book for sermon series and Bible studies because it's described by some as kind of bleak. Um, and you'll see why. We're going to read from it. But it's a book that's categorized as wisdom literature, which is, uh, wisdom literature, which is a genre that includes instructions for successful living or ponders the perplexities of human existence uh, and contemplates those. And Ecclesiastes really falls more in that second category. There's not a lot of great advice. It's a lot of pondering, a lot of reflection. And the author is just identified as the teacher. However, the book is frequently thought of as referencing King Solomon. If you don't know who he is, I don't have time to do all of that background this morning, but that's something to Google. Um, And that the book is possibly even written by King Solomon. But either way, when we're looking at this, we're looking through the perspective of King Solomon on life, who had more wealth, more possessions, asked God for uh, the greatest measure of wisdom and was given it. And it is reflections from that vantage point at the end of that life. And so as you'll see in the reading, the author has sought to find meaning in life through every conceivable pursuit and has come up empty. The question the reader is ultimately left with is if you've tried excess, if you've tried abundance, what is left but the pursuit of fewer things or possibly even a singular thing? And so as we read our scripture this morning, we're going to see lots of things that clutter our lives and distract from a deeper sense of meaning. And so I'm going to have you, um, I'm going to, I'm going to read to you from Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. It is page 553 in your pew Bible. I believe it will be on the screen. And we, I would invite you to join me in prayer as we open the word. Father God, as we turn to open your word this morning, we just pray uh, that your Holy Spirit would guide our reading and our understanding, that you would... Uh, show us the true meaning of your text, that 
uh, and point it back to your son, Jesus, for us, that you would uh, teach us the wisdom of your word and that you would help us apply it to our lives and to our hearts so that we might become more faithful disciples of Jesus. We ask all this in your name. Amen. Ecclesiastes 2, starting in verse 1. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what, u- what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had uh, been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold, the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of men. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all my hands had done and all the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity, a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. This is the word of the Lord. Now, when I was uh, contemplating picking a book of the Bible to look at, I was listening to a pastor who had been studying Ecclesiastes and um, was preparing for a sermon series on it a few years ago, and he got a hospital call to go visit someone who was near death, not a Christian, but connected to someone in the church, and so he had to kind of do a last rites and, um, with a non-Christian, and he didn't really know what to do, and so he said, what was on my heart was Ecclesiastes. So I just opened Ecclesiastes and started reading from chapter 1. And by the end of chapter 2, the man in the bed had broken down crying and come to faith in Christ. Now that might seem really bizarre. Um, But there was a a now famous uh, pastor who once uh, worked here named R.C. Sproul who came to faith through the reading of Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Now I'll let you read that on your own to figure out how in the world that works. Um, But it's a curious book because it forces us to ask these questions that don't come up in everyday conversation. It forces us to examine our life from a fast forward, from the end of life after the pursuit, someone who had no limitations on their pursuits and still came up empty in life. And really one of the points that we're going to see uh, not just in today's reading, but throughout the book, is that people look for the meaning of life and joy in the wrong places and frequently in the wrong time, meaning they're always banking on some future happiness. And so he sees all of this futility in wealth and in 
uh, possessions and in pleasure and self-help and security and work uh, and popularity. And he sees the futility of all that and what at first seems like a curse is actually a gift. The depths of life have been explored uh, by this writer and connecting with God is what brings ultimate meaning and satisfaction, which is available to all of us. Meaning we don't need the resources of Solomon to reach the ultimate wisdom that's reached by the book. Now, we're going to talk about his particular pursuit of pleasure this morning. It says he held no pleasure from himself. Whatever his heart craved, he sought after it. And whether it was uh, entertainment or property or vacation or recreation, all of these things he had in abundance. But we're going to talk about two problems that occur with pleasure. And we're going to talk about particularly how they apply to us. And the first one is this is sometimes when we focus on pleasure, pleasure can become a form of escapism. We use pleasure to avoid dealing with our lives. Now, as we talk about pleasure, that's a broad category that I'm going to narrow down for. So I'm going to talk about a particular type of pleasure, and that is entertainment. Now, why would I talk about entertainment? The answer is it is so universal. There is not an Amer- someone living in America who's been here for more than a month who has not been overwhelmed by entertainment. Now, the perils of pleasure can be found in drugs and alcohol and even in vacation. Now, there's a really interesting essay that I'm not going to quote to you, but from one of my favorite writers named David Foster Wallace, who was paid by a travel magazine to go on a cruise and write about his experience. And the title of the essay was A Supposedly Fun Thing That I'll Never Do Again. And what, what he found was, he said, you know, from the moment you get on the ship, you're just completely pampered. Every need, you know, there's waiting on you hand and foot. And he thought, I really love this. And he then he thought, started thinking about it midweek and thought, I'm actually kind of disturbed by how much I love this. He said, the last time life was this effortless, I was in my mother's womb. And the fact that he was interacting with people who come two, three times a year on a cruise and build their lives around it, and as soon as they're not on a cruise, they're thinking, when can I be back on a cruise? He said, now that might be a problem. He said, I understand the pleasure of it, but they seem to have nothing else other than the pursuit of this pleasure. And so the question, I want to be really practical here, is have you ever come home from a busy or stressful or frustrating day and thought, I don't want to talk about my day I don't want to think about it. I don't want to process it. I just want to turn on my TV. I want to turn on my music, whatever it is, and zone out. Now, that's using entertainment as a form of pleasure, but as an escape from life, from avoiding dealing with the realities of life. And, uh, you know, that happens. It's even in the car, whether you listen to uh, music really, really loud, so loud that you can't hear emergency sirens, let alone your own thoughts, or whether you're listening to podcasts and you're always, uh, podcasts or talk radio or whatever, and you're always hearing voices in your head that aren't your own, you're just avoiding dealing at some point with your own thoughts. And it isn't just that entertainment is an escape, it's the sense of pleasure that we seek after. Now there's a doctor named, uh, Renee Carr, who's a clinical psychologist, She talks about dopamine, the chemical that's released in your body. And she said this, it gives the body a natural internal reward of pleasure that reinforces continued engagement in activity. It's the brain signal that communicates to the body, this feels good. You should keep doing this. 
Your body does not discriminate against pleasure, she continues. It can be addicted to any activity or substance that constantly produces dopamine, end of quote. And so here's our problem. Our bodies are designed naturally to recognize pleasure and to enjoy it. That's why we call it pleasure. But there is no internal device or mechanism in the human body that says, you know, I think that's enough pleasure. There's no self-regulating uh, off valve. Now, in human history, there were times when pleasure was such a rarity in cultures and in life and for uh, periods of life that you didn't really need that off valve. But when you're in a 21st century American culture and everything becomes entertainment, which we're going to talk about, uh, that off valve becomes really important. Now, another quote from uh, David Foster Wallace, who's a great uh, essayist of the late 20th century, said this. He said, part of the appeal of pleasures, whether it's drugs or television, is the idea of escapism. It seems fine over the short haul, but as a way of life, it doesn't work that well. Media and entertainment have become so easy, so pleasurable, and so vast that they are more appealing than real life. Now that is what we need to warn against. So if you're trying to find meaning in life by avoiding real life, there's a problem. Now, many of you, uh, this might seem like a strange reference out of nowhere, but many of you, uh, either in school, have had, had to read uh, George Orwell's 1984. Raise your hand if you're familiar with that book. Or Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Raise your hand if you've read that book. Raise both hands if you've read both. Now, both of these are dystopian novels about uh, an evil future where people, the population is controlled uh, by some totalitarian regime of some sort. And a lot of people think that the two books are basically the same. But Neil Postman, in, in his 1984 book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, said that actually, contrary to common belief, Huxley, who's Brave New World, and Orwell, who's 1984, did not prophesy the same thing. Orwell warns that we will become, we will be overcome by an externally imposed oppression. But in Huxley's vision, there is no big brother required to deprive people of their autonomy, maturity, and history. As he saw it, people will come to love their oppression, to adore the technologies that undo their capacities to think. He wrote that in 1932, before the television, before the internet, before the computer. And he says it this way, he says, for Orwell, he feared that leaders would ban books. For Huxley, he feared there would be no reason to ban a book because no one would want to read it. For Orwell, he said, we feared that we would be deprived of information. Huxley feared that we would be given so much information that we would be reduced to passivity and egoism. Orwell feared that truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared, feared that truth would be drowned out in a sea of irrelevance. Orwell feared that we would become a captive culture. Huxley feared that we would become a trivial culture. Now, most of us, when we think about horror scenarios, still think in Orwellian terms. Some dictator will rise up and control us, and we don't think about the Huxleyan back door of how pleasure can just lull you to sleep and that you lose by just forfeiting control of your own thoughts uh, through this constant escapism. And so that's the first warning of pleasure. I know, 
It gets worse. And so the second warning of pleasure is this, is either underestimating pleasure or the overconsumption of pleasure. Now, pleasure and entertainment have frequently been underestimated. In 1981, the Federal Communication Commission chairman, Mark Fowler, described TV as, quote, just another appliance, a toaster with pictures, end quote. Now, if that isn't a gross underestimation, now, do you know anyone who sits and looks at their toaster for six hours a day? So he's underestimated the value of uh, entertainment. And, you know, th- there were these commercials when I was a kid. I'm sure they're still on now. I just don't watch as much uh, over-the-air TV. It's all streaming now. But there were these commercials for sugar cereals. And my particular Achilles heel was Cinnamon Toast Crunch or Apple Jacks. But you know, have you know these commercials where, you know, they have some cartoon something and it's all bouncing around? And then at the end, they show you the picture of the cereal you want, and it says, part of this balanced breakfast. However, next to it is a bowl of oatmeal, a banana, a, you know, a thing of orange juice, and maybe some kind of protein. And I think even as a kid, I knew that if you remove the sugar cereal from that picture, you still have the healthy balanced breakfast that they're talking about. However, as a kid, I felt like I could just eat the sugar cereal and be fine. And that is the danger of overconsumption of something that in moderation can be a good part of life. That's, you know, pleasure and entertainment is kind of like our cinnamon toast crunch. It's our sugar cereal. And, you know, balanced out with other things, that can be fine. In fact, cinnamon toast crunch, I'd still maintain as wonderful. But if it's all you eat for three meals a day without the other pieces in there, that's a problem. And so the problem is when the consumer loses control over their consumption and seeks passive entertainment. Now, the average American watches four hours per day of TV, which is actually down from six hours a day in the 90s. However, that's just TV. That is not screen time. Because I have, I mean, now you're going to laugh at this because you should. I have some friends who... Uh, kind of had a holier-than-thou thing, and they said, oh, yeah, we don't even own a TV. And then five minutes later, they were talking about some show they had just seen on Netflix, and I was like, hold on now. How are you watching Netflix if you don't even own a TV because it's beneath you? And they're like, oh, we just watch on our laptop. And I was like, <laughs> a rose by any other name. Still a rose. And this idea that you can become just captive to this, the fact that you need it on all the time, that there's something comforting and soothing about having the sound of the radio or the TV on at all times, even if you're not actively watching it just for it to be on in the background, is problematic. And our tastes, now we've, we are such a television culture. Now, if you're employed full-time, you spend eight hours a day at work and four hours a day watching TV, which begs the question, what else are you doing with your time? And when it was six hours a day in the 90s, it was like, are you also watching TV at work? I don't even know how that's possible for it to be the average, which means, you know, some people are going to be well above the average. Some people will be below the average. But our thinking has now been so shaped by TV, by Internet, by uh, the digital age that uh, the pleasure of being entertained is so consuming that it affects every aspect of life. Now. If you think about, I've just, I mean, I could go on and on. This could be its own sermon series. But if you think of 
uh, you know, cable news, something that should be the simple conveying of information. For 24 hours a day has uh, these overwhelming graphics and commercials and dramatic music and entertaining personalities. And then you realize it's not really news, it's news entertainment. It's entertainment news. And sports, which is entertainment, now has dedicated news channels about sports, meaning that's like entertainment about entertainment, um, posturing as news. But And then, then you look at education. And teachers nowadays have to compete with entertainers. There are TED Talk videos that are much more entertaining than your local teachers a lot of the time. And students will not pay attention in class, go home and watch something on YouTube that they think is much more effective at teaching them, and they'll curate their own education based on what is most entertaining. In fact, there is even uh, a very large academic book by a woman named Jean Haugren Killed called When Church Became Theater. And she goes through all of the ways that church has become uh, immersed by entertainment, but not just immersed, but controlled by entertainment culture. Our ex- expectations when we come to church are to be entertained in the way that we are in everything else we do. When we go to school, we expect to be entertained. When we watch movies and TV, we certainly expect to be entertained. When we listen to the news, we expect to be entertained. And so it transfers then to church, and that becomes a crutch uh, for the church and something that prohibits uh, some people from being able to access the church. And the bottom line is this. The problem isn't when entertainment is good. The problem is when everything becomes about entertainment. Now, try to think of a way in which you can have a meaningful relationship with God or another person when entertainment is your primary criteria for life. Because a relationship with God, a relationship with another person, is not always pleasurable. It's hard work. It requires uh, some commitment that will not always entertain you. And so... We have to think about that carefully. But what we want to end with, we want to end in the positive here. So I realize now I've effectively brought you into the mood of Ecclesiastes. It should feel like we've just been reading Ecclesiastes the whole time. Because that's some pretty bleak points. There, I Hopefully you hear the truth in them and not just that I'm condemning you, but this is convicting. And by the way, I meet the averages in most ways for screen time and TV and radio and I listen to music so loud in my car I can't hear myself think. Um, and I'm drowning out my thought because I too am part of this culture. I'm not speaking to you as an outsider. This is someone who is deeply impacted by all these things. And the good news for us this morning is, one, God is not opposed to pleasure. God actually designed us with the capacity for pleasure and the many resources for pleasure. And if you don't believe me, I mean, Psalm 104, 15 says God gave man wine so that so as to delight their hearts. Meaning, he gave you wine, not just so you had something to drink other than water, but so that you have that glad feeling that you get from drinking wine. And uh, in Ecclesiastes, it goes on in chapter 2 to call pleasure a gift from God. And so the pursuit of pleasure itself is not wrong, the, the regret of the teacher in Ecclesiastes is that he sought pleasure apart from God without taking God into account. And as we look forward into the New Testament, it's interesting that you hear all of these confessions from Solomon, yet in Matthew twelve forty two, Jesus identifies himself as a greater Solomon. 
So Jesus is not distancing himself from Solomon. He's drawing himself close to Solomon and saying, uh, Solomon searches uh, the deepest questions of life and Jesus answers them. Jesus is the greater Solomon. Jesus has answers to all of the questions posed by Solomon. And he doesn't just answer them. He is the answer to all of these questions about the meaning of life. And Ecclesiastes concludes that essentially, since all worldly endeavors are futile, find enjoyment in God's daily gifts of food, drink, and toil or labor. So far from saying, since they're all pointless, you should be you know, grim about them. He's saying, they're all pointless, but they are gifts from God. So just enjoy them as gifts from God, as part of that relationship with God, but don't build your life around them. And what we're talking about this morning isn't shunning all entertainment or pleasure. I would be the first to fail that sermon application. That's not what we're trying to do. But rather, we're not trying to let our lives be built around the pursuit of pleasure and entertainment. The the real meaning in life is found in relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And in that context, you are free to enjoy pleasure without building your life around it. And so, I've got... Two things for you to reflect on as you go. And now you notice the subtitle of the series is a declutter and focus your life. So one of these is a way to declutter and another is a way to focus your life. The first is this. I would recommend that in the next week with a pen or a paper, an app, something, you spend a little bit of time at the end of each day and you just track. How did I spend my time today? And do this for a week. And you know, ask yourself some questions like, how many, how many hours was my TV on? How many hours was I in front of a computer? Do I need my phone right next to my bed? Things like that. And you might be surprised how much of your time slips away from you on a daily basis and identify those ways that you are seeking out pleasure, you're seeking out distraction, you're trying to avoid life. And then ask yourself, is this really, this thing, whatever it is in your life, is this what I'm willing to build my life around? If I were to take this day and multiply it by five years, by 10 years, by 50 years, would I be satisfied with how that time was spent? And I can promise you the answer will be no. Whatever those distractions are. So that's one, declutter. Look at your schedule. Look at your life. Not someone else's life. Not a sample size or data and statistics about the American. Your particular life. Spend five minutes doing that. And then... Spend five more minutes in prayer or reading scripture each day than you normally do and see if that makes a difference. Now, if you don't spend any time in prayer or scripture every day, if you've never thought to do that before, spend five minutes. If you spend 30, spend 35. If you spend 60, spend 65. And now too often we claim that we can't hear God's voice in our life, but too often it's because we are drowning it out. Now, if you read your Bible for an hour a week, that is exponentially more than the average American Christian, and it is one quarter what the average American spends watching TV every day. And that's not an equal distribution of priorities. If you're saying, my life is not about the pursuit of pleasure and entertainment and happiness, it's about a relationship with God, your schedule would disagree with you. And so as we move back into a time of worship, I want to remind you that pleasure and entertainment are gifts from God and they are meant to be enjoyed. But if we build our lives around the gifts rather than the gift giver, we'll find that our lives have become cluttered, unfocused, and ultimately unsatisfying. Would you please join me in prayer? 
Father God, we thank you for the challenging words of your scripture. We pray that the wisdom uh, would not just penetrate us and convict us, but that it would transform us, that your Holy Spirit would take this word that you've written and that it would be planted deep in our hearts and that it would challenge the ways that we approach our daily lives. And we ask all of this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen.